0: This afternoon, um, I was taking a walk down the road and went by the uh, the lower community hall and uh, passed uh, the parking lots. <clears throat> and I came back, walking back, and just saw both parking lots filled just about every spot taken. There was a day long at the, uh, in the lower hall today, about 200 people plus down there, and all of us here. And I just I was filled with delight and awe just at the thought of all of us, 300 or so people practicing together. Seems like it's loud. Is it loud enough? It's loud. Down just a little bit. I think it's. Is it loud enough for you? Yeah. It, it, it's a bit loud. Just filled with um, with awe and um, inspiration. Just the the fact that we're all here, three hundred of us today, just coming to. Take an honest look at life, and at the truth, and supporting each other in doing it. Um, it was just a, an extraordinary feeling. I come here a fair amount, and you know, every now and then, when, especially on a retreat, perhaps I'm maybe a bit more mindful and, and don't take th- take things quite for granted. Uh, looking at what's going on, and uh, it's it's really amazing, and want to just. Um, celebrate that moment of of delight with you and and how much I appreciate you and all of us uh, being here together. So here we are, just about 24 hours later, a lot can happen in 24 hours, huh? Or maybe it seems like nothing's happened in 24 hours, (laughs) depending upon how you're looking at it. This is a quite amazing process. and When you try to figure out what's happening, it gets very confusing. While you're in the middle of this process, and I know because I've tried many times, you know, what's going on? Am I getting anything out of this retreat, out of this day? What did I get today? It seemed like I just was asleep most of the time. Well, yeah, I was spacing out a lot when i wasn 't asleep, and uh, well, there was a lot of restlessness today too. And, you know, boy, did my body ache you know what What could possibly be the benefit of doing what I did today you know? <laughs> i don 't know if you 've had any of those thoughts, but they <laughs> they sometimes have come to me, especially on the first day of of practice. so I wanted to talk a bit about why we are here and maybe uh, give you some sense, uh, a a bigger picture of what we're doing besides just what happened to you in the last meditation. (coughs) I mentioned uh, to a couple of the groups that I I saw and I'm sure the others who saw Sharda and and Howie uh, probably heard a little bit of this too. It's it's very common at the beginning to have sleepiness, restlessness, body aches, wandering mind, and real challenges as you're here in this situation where you're being told, okay, sit still now for these next 45 minutes. Now walk in this very strange way and now eat this way, and now sleep in this bed that you might not be familiar with. It's almost guaranteed to bring up some um, resistance and some doubt, particularly since the first day or so, there's a lot of um, low energy, and when the energy is low, it's uh, that much more challenging to deal with everything that you're seeing. So if any of those have happened to you, you're right on schedule, doing just fine. That's pointing to one of the lists, which I I won't go into in detail tonight, of the, um, the difficulties, the hindrances of wanting and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. That having a mind and a heart and a body, you will be subject to. Sometimes it's comforting to see that all of those things that you're going through are right there listed in the texts. So, oh, yeah. I want to share with you another list tonight. Uh, this uh, body of teachings is filled with lists. Um, and it's a, an inspirational list for me that gives a, an overview of how the practice works. And that is. Um, the list of the five spiritual faculties. The five, I'll just name them so you can get a bigger picture as we go through them, are faith, effort or energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And it's, uh, it's such an important list that actually it's listed twice. Once as the five spiritual faculties and once again as the five spiritual powers. It's the only list that I know of that's repeated twice, the exact same qualities of, of heart and mind. When they are ripened and developed, they become the spiritual powers one way to look at this um, list of qualities is that of bringing our practice into balance. That faith needs to be balanced with wisdom. That's one pair that are brought into balance. If there's too much faith and not enough wisdom we have what's called blind faith, and that can lead us into dangers. If there's too much wisdom, that is the investigating quality without the the quality of heart that faith is, there is um, a, a skeptical aspect to our practice, and our practice becomes dry and cerebral. So those need to be brought into balance. And as well, another pair, concentration and energy are also um, need to come into balance to operate optimally for them to be uh, powers. If there's too much energy and not enough stillness and composure and concentration, we become very restless. If there's too little energy or too much concentration and stillness, but not enough energy, we become dull and um, get into a, a confused or a sinking kind of mind and drifting off. And mindfulness is the quality of all the five that brings the others into perfect balance. Sometimes it's said that this whole practice is about balance of mind, all the factors. Balance of mind and I'll also say balance of heart, because the two can be used interchangeably in these teachings. Um, The word chitta in uh, Pali and Sanskrit points to um, this heart-mind. and In Asia, sometimes people point to the heart when they talk about their mind. Another way to look at this list is a kind of linear progression. And for the purposes of our practice, I'll share them that way. Although, uh, clearly, it's not that you go from one to the next so neatly. They can be developed uh, all at the same time. But there is a natural progression of one to another in a in a more general way. Okay, so the first of these faculties is faith. The word in Pali is sadha. This is what's generally translated as faith. Literally, it means to put one's heart upon. Other aspects of faith that are included in this word are having a sense of trust, confidence. There is a quality of courage also that faith gives us that um, allows us to venture into new territory into the unknown. But when we say to put one's heart upon in, in a sense, what it's pointing to is moving from beyond our small sense of self to something larger than who we think we are. Because you're, you're putting your heart into something outside of your small identity. And one could could say that this points to um, what in the West is often thought of as putting one's faith in a higher power or in God. Sometimes the word faith might trigger off some images or memories if you come from a particular uh, religious background that that might, uh, might be hard for you to take in. So when I use any of these words, if if they um, trip you up, then see if you can translate them in a way that's uh, meaningful for you, useful for you. So we put our, our faith in something, or we put our trust in something, in this case, in the Dharma, that allows us or that fuels our energy and effort to do this practice. Because it's hard to do without some kind of heart connection to the exercise. If you took somebody off the street, 4th Street in San Rafael, and said, okay, want you to uh, sit here and uh, watch your breath today. You you can take a break every now and then and walk and just lift your foot and know that you're lifting it and putting it down. it would be bizarre for them. And it would be probably one of the, not only one of the most difficult things to do, but wouldn't make any sense to them. In order to do this strange exercise, you have to have some kind of reason, an internal heart connection to do it. There's a few different ways that we can uh, get faith, or that are traditionally talked of as sources of faith. One is uh, called bright faith, where we become inspired by someone. Have an example of, say, the Buddha, or someone like uh, the Dalai Lama, or perhaps a book that you've read that really moves you, and you say, yes, there's something here. I want to find out for, I want to find out about. Or maybe a friend who you've seen develop over time who says, hey, there's really something I found I want to share with you. And that's a a very wonderful capacity of the heart to feel so inspired that you see another possibility and, and venture into new territory. For me, I remember when I first heard these teachings and uh, it was in 1974, and I heard Joseph uh, Goldstein talk. And after a few minutes of sizing him up and not being particularly impressed because he didn't fit my image of a you know, guru or meditation teacher, I just started listening to what he had to say. And not only heard the words, but heard the place that he was coming from And I knew that he knew something that I didn't, that I wanted to know. And when I got that what he was saying is that you don't have to be a slave to your neurotic thought patterns, it was revolutionary. And I believed him, and I just dove in (sighs) hook, line, and sinker. Because up until that point, I was pretty much resigned that that's that's how it would be for the rest of my life. And out of my own suffering up to that point, I was deeply motivated because I had a lot of suffering in this mind. Not that I'm completely finished. I've got a lot to go. But to see the possibility was just... um, well, it was life-changing, really. Do you remember for you, whether it was a friend or a book you read or somebody you heard speak? Do you remember what it was? Do you remember that experience? It's very precious, you know. Just even now, as I'm, I'm talking about it, I, you know, I'm right back there on in that room saying, wow, maybe there's another way. And that moves us to check it out for ourselves. And then we start to perhaps read or discuss, and we move on to another level of faith, which comes about by reflection and investigation and looking for ourselves and and reading and hearing teachings and and saying, hmm, maybe there is something to this, and maybe reflecting in a, in a theoretical and, and rational way. I remember when I came across a line in, in, the, Buddha's, uh, in the Buddha's teachings, again, it was a kind of you know, jolt where he said, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion... I would not tell you to do so. Just very straightforward. But hearing those words and reading those words, there was something that was, I couldn't explain, but I felt the rightness of it. And so again, be motivated to practice. I wanna say before I go to the third level of of faith, that often what is a motivation for practice is our own suffering. This is why the Buddha talked about suffering as the first noble truth. He said, if you understand suffering deeply, you will also understand the possibility of the end of suffering. I was talking with somebody at, uh, at tea time today who was, uh, we were talking about faith and she was sharing the story of how she got her faith, a real deep sense of faith, after her heart was just broken from um, a situation that didn't work out with a, in a relationship. And as she was talking, I was reflecting about one of the teachings where, in one list, suffering is the causative factor of faith. Sometimes our heart has to break, and we have to learn to let go of our safe comfort zone to open up to something larger than ourselves. And she said, that was the thing that led me to this deep, unshakable faith. When I wasn't looking outside and I could see, I could feel the rightness and the wholeness, there must be something else than what I was looking for. And it led her to that. And perhaps you've seen in your own life that suffering has led you to investigate for yourself. So that leads to the third faith, which is called verified faith. Out of inspiration and out of reflection, one applies the practice for oneself and takes a look. Just what you're doing here today. And it's hard. It really is hard, as I say at the beginning. But... Precisely because you have to have the intention, the sincere intention, to look honestly. Your very struggles become a kind of empowering of your heart. And you see for yourself the truth of things. This is what verified faith is where it's not something that you read, not something that you hear from somebody else, but you see for yourself these truths. You see for yourself that things really do change. Have you seen that? How many thoughts have you had today? God, just boggles the mind to think about. How many moods have you gone through? How many sensations have you had? And you're sitting there in this supposed stillness, look still on the outside, and there's this whole incredible show, flow of activity that you see is continually changing. And as you see that more and more for yourself, it's not something that you read in a book. It's not something in here. It's something in here. Remember on one retreat where I was filled with doubt. This is just crazy. It was my second retreat. Perhaps maybe some of you could relate to this. This is weird. Everybody around me is just going through the motions. We're all phonies. These guys up in front don't know what they're talking about. They are phonies. And I just said, "Whoa, I tried to do walking meditation, and it, I just was like a caged tiger. I, so I said, "I've got to just cool out." And I went up to my little uh, cubicle in this uh, this one retreat center up in Washington, and there looking out uh, out of the picture was uh, Neem Karoli Baba from Ramdas's books who kind of makes me who was my real heart connection to practice to the Dharma. Looking at me, and he makes me laugh sometimes. He says, Hmm, getting freaked out, aren't we? And in a moment, I, I laughed, and uh, you know, just oh wow, it's really getting intense there. And as soon as I could laugh at this absurdity that I was in, there was the whole doubt just dispelled, and I had all this renewed confidence for practice. And I couldn't wait to tell my teacher that I'd conquered doubt. Right. <laughs> but unfortunately, the interview was about uh, eight hours from that moment. And, <laughs> and in between, from conquering doubt, I was exhilarated, and then I kind of crashed, and then I got confused, and then I got <laughs> sleepy, and then I was you know, all over the map. And I went into the interview, and, and he said... Uh, so, how's it going? And I said in, in complete innocence and exasperation, it's always changing. <laughs> and he said, that's it. You, you got it. And it was it kind of snuck up from the back. Oh, yeah, it, that's what they're talking about. It <laughs> is always changing. That kind of verified faith, no one can take away from you. Faith in this sense, is different from hope. Although hope is, can be a beautiful quality, and sometimes we you know, say, I hope you're doing well, and I hope things work out. When we're hoping here on the cushion, uh, then as Seneca says, uh, we, we are ruled by fear. We cease to be afraid when we cease to hope he says, because hope is always accompanied by fear. So that hope has an agenda often attached to it. Faith is a sense, not that everything is going to work out perfectly, but there is a confidence, a trust that the awareness can meet the moment. Not even trusting in yourself, will I be able to do this, but just trusting in the awareness that if i meet it with as kind and wise an attitude as i can that things will reveal themselves that there's a natural order to to life that there's a cause and effect that there is a karma a law of karma so this faith, and as you get more of the verified faith, it gives you more energy to practice, which is one of the, the benefits of doing these retreats. You know, As you've seen, people keep on coming back, You know, as bizarre as it might be for you if it's the first time, because you taste that truth, and it's so compelling, it makes you want to taste it more and more. You know it's true. That faith leads to the second faculty of effort and energy. It's simply the effort or the energy to be present for our experience. And effort is uh, is an issue that is a central issue in practice because We want to do it right. You know, have you seen that in yourself? I want to do this right, you know. I want to be a good meditator, a good yogi. I don't want to, you know, be lazy. But I don't want to kill myself in the process either. How much is right? What should I do? And effort points to this quality of balance that I mentioned at the beginning, because it needs to be a balanced effort. If there's too much effort, we get tight. If there's too lax an effort, nothing happens. We don't see. We get lazy, and then we get confused and doubtful. And the Buddha gave an image to, uh, to one monk who was an overzealous monk who was getting really caught up and, and, and tight and wound up saying, um, uh, weren't you a musician before you joined the order? He said, yes. And he said, well, what happens when you turn the, the string too tight? Did you get the right pitch? Oh, no, it was too high a note. And what happens when you turn it too loose? No, too low. Just the right amount of tension, and we can get the right pitch. And the same way with our practice, just the right amount of effort, of energy, and we can have a clarity, a balance to our practice. So what that means is not finding the absolute right amount in the middle of the scale and just staying there because we are dynamic processes and our energy changes all the time. So it's checking in and seeing what is needed to bring about a balance. If you start feeling like the walls are closing in, this is a clue that maybe you need a little bit of space. You know, that claustrophobic feel, or if you're getting... Uh, getting really uh, agitated and tight, then it's time to just get some space. It's not cheating to get space. And what you might do, even if slow walking is generally uh, what you see around you, is the most skillful thing to do could be to just go for a walk and just relax. I remember on one retreat, I had been... Going very slowly because I, I generally like that style. When you're in that gear, it's almost hard to get out of it. And it, this was on a, a longer retreat in uh, in Massachusetts, um, and uh, I had been practicing very slowly for for some time, and it had, it was working well. But then after about uh, uh, oh two weeks or so, going really slowly, I was just getting. Tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. But I thought maybe if I keep on going more slowly and more slowly, you know, that, that'll do it. You know? And it was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And finally I said, the heck with this, I was trying it for about a week that way, the heck with this, I'm not going to be mindful at all. Okay? And I'm just going to go for a walk, a real walk like human beings do. Okay? And I uh, decided to put on my boots and my, uh, uh, my winter clothes. I hadn't been out for, uh, for quite some time, and it was snowing in New England. And I tried to, to take an unmindful walk. I remember it. This is like 20 years later. It was an amazing experience as I stopped trying to be mindful. Left, right, left, right. Sniffling, hearing, smelling, left, right, left, right. Thinking, hearing, thinking, Yes, yeah, right, left. I couldn't not be mindful. It was amazing. Because what I needed at that moment was to just let go of trying so hard. And the practice had its own momentum of energy. If you find yourself laid back, be careful. If you have a tendency to take it easy, um, I would encourage you to look at the forward edge of effort and you can always pull back. Because if you say, well, if I'm mindful, I'm mindful. If I'm not, I'm not, you know. <laughs> chances are you probably won't be. You know? And so that's the time to reconnect and recommit with what inspired you to come here in the first place. It's all about a balance of effort. One problem that arises with effort is when we evaluate our effort by what our practice seems to be looking like. And we equate effort with the results that we're experiencing this is dangerous Oh gosh my mind is just everywhere I must not be doing it right or gosh you know I'm so sleepy what is going on you know what am I doing wrong And we have all these kind of ideas and, and misconceptions about what genuine Good practice would look like, and if you went around the room, you'd probably get you know 90 different images of what a good yogi would look like. I know, you know. Sometimes I, I've been, uh, I've been on retreat. In my early years, you know, I wasn't. I was just feeling. I, I was. I fell in love with the practice in uh, the first few retreats, and I thought after that, that great doubt. And, uh, and people around me would be, you know, crying and wailing and emoting. And, and after a while, I started thinking, God, what am I missing here? You know? <laughs> and, I, you know, I don't know if I'm getting my money's worth or, you know, what's, everybody's feeling so much. I'm just here, you know, feeling my breath or, you know, feeling my, and I, I went to my teacher and saying, you know, hey, uh, I think, Something's something's a bit off here, you know? and he said, "Don't go looking for trouble; it'll find you soon enough," <laughs> which it did. You know, and then I had a whole uh, cycle in practice where there was there were all kinds of memories and uh, a lot of grieving and, you know, thinking, you know, God, I'm so sloppy now. You know, just let me get back to the breath. Everybody around me is so quiet. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I've spent. <laughs> Hours, you know, tears coming out of me on the cushion. and It's so easy to, to compare yourself to everybody else around. Have you seen that? You know, especially around social situations like lunchtime. Right? And there you are, you know, just seeing how others do it and thinking, oh, I'm not as good, or hey, I'm better than. But we get caught up in looking or trying to evaluate our practice and say, oh, now I'm doing it well, or now I'm not doing it well. And it's a complete misconception. Notice how much you are practicing in relationship to the others around you, or for the benefit of others around you, or hiding from others around you. It it can be humorous. And I've mentioned this before, some of you heard me say this on one retreat I was kind of getting into slow walking and I'd be all by myself and just you know, lifting, moving, placing, and just really enjoying the practice. And then somebody would come into my in my uh, space and all of a sudden I'd have a, a different reason for doing the walking, you know. And I started to use a mental note, you know, lifting, moving, looking good, <laughs> you know, looking good, looking good, you know, looking bad, you know. And you have to kind of laugh when you see that. It's really, really good to remember a sense of humor when you're doing this. The key to effort is not a, not a strong will, but it really comes from the heart. This is why, why faith is so integrally connected with, with effort, because it's the sincerity of heart that we bring to our practice. That's our secret ingredient. What you do externally for adjusting that level of energy, you know, that's all skillful means. But if you keep on coming back to your heart and have the intention to be here in whatever way you can, as best you can, that's the practice. And when you forget and you've gone off on a tangent, or you've gotten lost or somehow the last five hours have you know evaporated while you've been on Mars somewhere, you know it's never too late to start again. okay, let me just be here for this moment, and don't worry about the five hours to go for the rest of the day or the two days to go for the retreat, just this moment, keeping it that simple and that Effort to be present brings us to the next spiritual faculty. The effort to be mindful leads to mindfulness. That's just how it works. And as I said in one of the groups, even when it doesn't seem like much is, is happening, then spacing out or sleeping or uh, having some aversion to your knee pain. That intention bears fruit in times that you are least likely to um, exp- to, to think you're experiencing it. You know, so there you are, kind of in a battle with your with your cushion. I remember one teacher saying that meditation practice is having a love-hate relationship with your zafu, uh, you know, and you've done battle, it seems for. For an hour, 45 minutes, and then you go for a walk and you're just here. Or you have a cup of tea and you're just really there for the tea in a way that you're not usually there in your life. Or you're brushing your teeth or taking a shower and lo and behold, you're present. The effort to be mindful brings about mindfulness, and mindfulness is is the heart of all the practice. What it is simply is knowing what's happening, that is paying attention, being present for what's happening, without grasping at the pleasant, without pushing away the unpleasant, and without taking ownership of your experience, my wonderful meditation, my awful meditation, my bizarre mind, my noble, saintly heart, but rather just seeing things as they are for what they are. And what mindfulness can do is it brings about a purification of the mind and the heart. Because in the moment that you're not grasping at the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant or identifying with your experience, it's a moment of freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. And it is the the source of happiness. In the mind and the heart. It deconditions those three modes that are the source of all suffering grasping, aversion, and, and confusion or ignorance. So it's a very powerful force. Now, in the beginning, it takes a little practice and it takes a lot of patience. The good thing about doing a lot of these retreats is you know that it's going to take a little while for the mind to settle down. And as I mentioned uh, this afternoon, uh, just a reality check, for most people it takes about three days to settle down to the point where there are stretches of mindfulness. I know it's a three-day retreat. (laughs) I've tried to figure out many times how I could start a weekend on the fourth day, but never been able to figure it out. But there is something quite extraordinary that happens even in this time together. I know. You'll, you'll see. Well, I hope you'll see. No guarantee. But I think you'll see. Because there's a purifying quality that happens when you, um, when you make that intention to wake up. And it's a bit like fasting. I, I gave this uh, image in, uh, in the groups. You know, you're know you fasting from stimulation, and at the beginning, when you do a fast, you kind of feel grumpy, and you feel deprived, and you feel resistant. And, and then as you clean yourself out, there's a lightness, and an ease, and an openness, and a clarity that comes. And that uh, is often what happens. Probably by the end of this experience, you'll feel a bit different than when you came here. mindfulness doesn't look any one way there can be lots of different ways to be mindful and as we have started with the instructions we've been working with the breath and then opening up to body sensations and then as we move on the retreat we'll include um, Sensei- uh, thoughts and emotions, sounds in a more um, uh, focused way. There's nothing outside of the meditation, nothing not worthy of mindfulness. So, not to think that this is about being a good breath watcher. That's a, it's a good trick to have to be able to watch your breath. But that's not all this is. The breath is used as a kind of sharpening stone, as I mentioned uh, this afternoon, so that then you can apply it to all parts of your experience. And sometimes the mindfulness will be very refined and precise. Sometimes it will be much more global. Sometimes you might feel real subtleties in the breath just the beginning of the in-breath, or noticing where the in-breath turns to the out-breath, or the rising to the falling. Or maybe you'll notice a whole myriad of sensations as you lift your foot and put it back on the ground. And it's wonderful when that happens, but there's a, a trap there that you can easily get caught in. And that is, if you happen to open up to that level of refined awareness, you can think that it's about being that way all the time. Oh, this is real mindfulness. And it's not. It's one kind of mindfulness. You can also be mindful of a storm moving through you. There you are in complete chaos and have no idea what's happening, and in one moment, if you can put the whole experience into one big package and notice, oh, confusion, that's what's going on. That is a moment of mindfulness that's just as potent and valuable as noticing the hair follicles in your nostrils swaying in the breeze. And in fact, it would probably be uh, one that will be more helpful in the long run because probably you're more confused in your life than that level of refined awareness. They complement each other, and the times that you can be that focused, wonderful, enjoy them, be inspired by them, but don't hold on to them. And don't think that mindfulness looks only one way, because it doesn't. Mindfulness is leading to more than just seeing the refined sensations. It's really getting to the heart of who we are. It's the doorway to, as the Buddha says, the overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, grief, and the doorway to the deepest freedom. This is uh, Nisargadat Maharaj who wrote, I am that. And talking about meditation. And what's the purpose of meditation? And he says, we know the outer world of sensations and actions, but our inner world of thoughts and feelings we know very little. The primary purpose of meditation is to become conscious of and familiar with our inner life. The ultimate purpose is to reach the source of life and consciousness. Incidentally, practice of meditation affects deeply our character. We are slaves to what we do not know. Of what we know, we are masters. Whatever vice or weakness in ourselves, we discover and understand its cause and its workings. We overcome it by the very knowing. The unconscious dissolves when brought into the conscious. So whatever you happen to see, oh, no, there's that in there. This is not bad. This is shining the light of awareness on what was unconscious. And at first, it might be humbling and seem like bad news. But actually, it is a purifying process. Just like in the, uh, in the fairy tales and, uh, in, and mythology, you know, when the, uh, when the hero or the heroine was dealing with a dragon or a demon, when they could find the name of the demon or the dragon, it lost its power over them. And it's the same way with mindfulness. When you see clearly or when you connect clearly with your fear or with your sadness or with your confusion, or with your wanting, all of those things that are hard to look at, the mindfulness shines the light on them, and so you don't have to spend your time running away or hoping to avoid. It's the paradox, when you move right towards what is frightening, most of the time, It loses its power. But the more you try to run away or push it away, the more power you give it. So mindfulness is extraordinary like that. Mindfulness is not thinking things through. And so I just want to put in a word, lest you are of a more cerebral bent. This is not about coming up with the answers. Although it is called insight meditation, and answers do mysteriously and miraculously come, but they usually come, see if this is true for yourself, when you're not trying to think your way through. There's a a line in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, um, stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. It's a beautiful line. Have you seen what happens when you try to get to the bottom, get to the answer? There's no bottom most of the time. And here's a, uh, a passage, a, a letter that I, I often read on retreats because it just says it so beautifully from a woman who was doing her first retreat, having a, a really hard time in her head over and over trying to think her way through <clears throat> she says, and it turned out to be a very profound retreat for her, and she wrote this letter at the end, "The one thing that is indelibly in my brain is remembering you don't have to figure it you don't have to figure it out. And that would never, ever register in my brain as an option before. You don't have to figure it out." Yesterday, I was walking and struggling in my brain, thinking round and round, and this voice came into my head that said, You don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, What is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and the various body sensations coming and going, and the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself, and I resume my walking. What a revelation. If we can let go of knowing, of getting the right answer, then we can see things fresh. And one of the gifts that mindfulness gives us is the refuge that comes from being here in the present moment. Because when we get confused and afraid, we're toppling forward into the future, and there's no sorting that one out. But when we come back to the present moment, oh, what's happening right now? Here is where connection and truth is to be found. So, faith leading to effort, leading to mindfulness, and mindfulness leads to concentration. Moments of mindfulness build on each other to bring about a momentum that leads to a focus of mind. That's just the way it works in this formula. Concentration takes time. It can't be done automatically. Although if you are familiar with the territory it can be a bit more accessible. But for most people particularly as they they start out it is just a very consistent and kind coming back to the moment again and again. One teacher I remember this Tibetan teacher called it manual labor. You know, just, OK, come on back again and again. And after a while, you start to know what it's like to be here in the present moment. It becomes a groove that you have uh, created. If you're impatient to get concentrated, I can tell you right now, it's not going to work. Patience means allowing for things to be the way they are and bringing your attention back quite diligently, as I mentioned in one of the groups today. The key moment in the meditation is when you see you've gone. At that point, you can respond either with frustration and discouragement or take the light in the fact that you've woken up and just come back again and again, making that effort to be mindful and being very patient with the process. There are some aids to concentration as we do this practice together. One thing, I mentioned this earlier uh, today, is being very simple and doing one thing at a time, if you can. Because that simplicity brings about a clarity where you can see things more clearly to just tie your shoes when you're tying your shoes. See if you can bring awareness to the very action that you're in the middle of. The key to concentration is continuity. That is having one moment build on another moment, build on another moment, and that develops that momentum. If you have a lot of breaks, where you don't have that intention to be mindful, it interrupts that whole process. And there's a, an image that I found very helpful of putting a kettle on a stove to boil. And even if the flame sometimes is on low and other times it's on high, if you take the kettle off every 30 seconds, it's not going to be cooking. But if you leave it on, no matter how the flame changes, it's going to cook after a while. And it's the same way with your practice. If you can bring a wholeheartedness to your practice, which also includes going for the walks when you need it, because that's what's important to bring about a balance. When you have that intention towards continuity, then the whole meditation becomes a dance. And so one moment leading to another, whether it's brushing your teeth or taking your plate back, it's all just as worthy of your attention. It's all a sacred act, all sacred moments. So continuity is the key. It's not usual that on a three-day retreat you're going to have very strong concentration. But it's not unheard of, either, that you can have glimpses of it. Or as I say, if you're familiar with that territory, it's just a bit more accessible to you. But for here, we're practicing a kindness and a spaciousness with what is, so that on the first level, you're not fighting your experience, and there can be an openness of heart that allows you to connect, because if there is enough spaciousness, then you can be with things without struggle. Okay, So faith leading to effort, effort leading to mindfulness, mindfulness leading to concentration, and then concentration leading to the last faculty, which is wisdom. What does wisdom mean? It's hard to <clears throat> say this in just a, a few minutes, and yet it's hard to talk about it in the deepest sense for, uh, for a long time, just using words. But in the, the most fundamental way, wisdom is seeing things clearly. And particularly, it's seeing three aspects of experience. Seeing that things change. Noticing because things are changing that holding on to any experience is going to be suffering. And also seeing that this changing process is who you are. That you are part of this whole flow of changing process. And so there is not this solid sense of self that we would usually think of ourselves as being. Wisdom is the opposite of ignorance, and ignorance is taking that which is impermanent to be permanent, or taking that which is the cause of suffering, that is, trying to grasp and hold on, to be the cause of happiness, or taking that which is essentially selfless, to be a solid sense of self. This is ignorance. And the, the concentration allows us to see clearly what is so. Oh, everything is changing. Oh, trying to hold on and control is really painful. Oh, I am this changing process too. Now that doesn't negate or deny the fact that there is a relative reality, too, that on the one hand, you're not who you think you are, and on the other hand, you are who you think you are. (laughs) That is, you are different from me, and if I pinch myself, you can't feel it. It's honoring both. There is a relative reality and an absolute reality, but most of us live in the relative reality and take that to be the only one. When we can get to the heart of the matter, we see, we see who we really are. And when we see who we really are, there is an openness and a freedom available to us. This is uh, from Huang Po, one of my favorite passages, teachings of Wang Po, a great Zen master. Your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It is the nature of the suchness. This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But most people of the world do not awake to it regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, that source would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. That's who you really are. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's your true nature. And when you see clearly, this is what you discover. So these are the five faculties. Faith to do this practice, to make the effort, the effort to be mindful, mindfulness leading to uh, composure and concentration, and concentration leading to real wisdom. And this is what freedom is about. So that's what we're doing here and why we're doing it. Every moment of mindfulness counts. Don't underestimate one. Every moment you're planting the seeds for that clarity and freedom. So let's sit for a moment. Let go of any trying or straining to make something happen and just let your awareness rest in this moment of life. for you for your attention. There's a, a half an hour now for a walking meditation and then we'll come back for the last sitting of the day and uh, during that sitting we'll, we'll close the day.